0: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And
1: I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. I'd
0: like to toss out a few synonyms, some synonymous terms. Theater, acting, brilliance, redgrave. The Redgrave <laughs> family, one of the best-known families in theater, not only here in this country, but certainly in Great Britain. Lynn Redgrave, currently on Broadway in The Constant Wife, our guest today. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you. Nice the Constant there. Wife. Now, I remember you back in 1966, I think it was my first exposure, to Georgie Girl. Yes. I think you would have been in Tom Jones, which I saw, but I remember certainly Georgie Girl. And since you made your acting debut at the Royal Court Theater, in uh, 1962, your professional acting debut in *A Midsummer's Night Dream*. Here we are with *The Constant Wife*, a Somerset Maugham play. Indeed. Now I've seen it. Howard has seen it, but many of our view of our listeners, probably have not. Basically, it's a it's a drawing room comedy.
2: Well, it's a drawing room comedy about infidelity. Mm-hmm. I mean, drawing when when one uses the term drawing room comedy, I usually think of much more genteel things than mm. than, than wild infidelity and, and, and flagrant lying. Uh, it, the audience really get behind this play, as you know, because you've seen it, um, because it just seems so modern. In fact, a lot of people say to me and Kate Burton and our wonderful company, Oh, you've updated this. Oh, that line. That must have been a new modern line. And of course it's not. It's all 1926 Somerset Maugham.
1: Well, for the vast majority of Americans, this is not a particularly familiar play. It was last on Broadway Mm. 30 years ago. Um, Is this a play that's seen more frequently in England? Is it better known over there? Or is this really something that's been pulled out to to re-enter the repertory?
2: It seems to be re-entering the repertory. It was actually done in England a couple of years ago. Uh which was its first time in umpteen years. I had never read it. I had never seen it. I didn't see Ingrid Bergman do it. I knew nothing about it. Um, you know, Somerset Maugham, yes. The, the, the Circle is the only play of his I knew. And I was just so surprised at... Uh, how, that it actually is a play of great depth. You know, we play it at one hell of a speed and we get oh, maximum laugh wattage, I would say. But... It, in fact, has a a real depth about human relationships, about what does a woman, certainly back then, but even today, the whole idea of being, if you're economically independent, you can be free. And um, Constance, as so beautifully played by Kate Burton, makes a lot of very surprising choices, even for a today's woman. Having known about her husband's infidelity, um... With her best friend. I mean, there's very, very few of us who could actually stomach that. But it's, it's, she does. <laughs> for, for, for the listeners, the, the
0: first act is really everybody seems to know about this infidelity except your, uh, the, uh, Kate Burton's character. Yeah, Kate who, in Burton. fact, does know it, but yes. she's not letting on to others as she knows. It. So it's that, that comedy trying to keep the secret.
2: Yeah. And, and Somerset Maugham's so clever because he kicks it right off within the first three lines. We know that the husband who obviously is going to enter soon must be it's his living room as well uh is being unfaithful to his wife my daughter in the play with the best friend and so that sets it right up i mean usually those sort of revelations come later in the play but no right off the top um and it plunges on from there and they and the twists and turns keep on coming to the very last minute, which does take people by surprise. I mean, in the very last few lines, I won't give it away, but we we find a, dis- a new decision of Kate Burton's Constance.
1: We know... That in most cases when shows go into rehearsal, people sit around the the rehearsal table for a while and talk about the play with the director. And this is a play in which the women are so dominant. What were the initial reactions to the piece? Did people see it as immediately modern, or was there discussion about how it might have played then versus how to play it now?
2: Um, we didn't talk so much about how, to, how it would have been played then. Uh, we did talk a lot about uh, period. And uh, Certainly Mark Brokaw, our wonderful director and his assistant and indeed our designers, had gone to a lot of trouble to give us masses and masses of sort of research and stuff about, you know, su- some of lots of which was fascinating to me too, although some of the research was a little more familiar. You know, I'm familiar with the fact that Harley Street, where it takes place, is the very, you know, upmarket doctor's street. And so certain things, certain sort of class things, You know, I know about, but um, my gosh, this company is so, you know, they're all so experienced in Shakespeare, Shaw, Noel Coward, um, as well as all, you know, American contemporary and classical plays that um, it poses no problem to them. But we did talk a lot about what was going on at the time, what the behavior we almost immediately had our shoes, handbags, hats, um, if we wore a coat or a jacket. Nobody who was wearing a skirt in the play, and that is, of course, all the girls, <laughs> rehearsed in jeans, for example, just so that we would, right from the very, very beginning, begin to move with the sort of, the kind of the grace, the the not sitting with the old knees apart thing, you know, that we all do in our trousers. So you were kind of um, get,
0: getting into the part right from the, the beginning. And, get,
2: well, get, and getting into that, I think if you get into the costumes, or you get into a sort of version of the costumes... You have to move a certain way. You do have to sit differently mm-hmm. in in pants than you do in skirts. And we talked a lot about the younger women, as opposed to my, my character, Mrs. Culver, clearly found a style that suited her around 1915, before this play, thought it suited her and stuck with it, as as some people even do today. They kind of stick with the when they're older. They stick with the style that suits them. Um, we We talked a lot about that, about what a a woman's day would be, what What a man's day would be, what the, you know, the mores of the time were. And that was very helpful.
1: But did you talk about whether in its day this was a shocking play? Since the surprise about the play, I think for a lot of people, is when they hear they're seeing a play set, that was written and set in the 1920s, that they are seeing a period piece and it's sort of quaint. And what's surprising is how very modern the ideas are. Yes. Was Is there any discussion or any context given to how it played then?
2: We just all presume that it, it that they were duly shocked. I'm sure they were. I mean we we don't know. I'm not so sure. So drawing whether room
1: comedy the expectation is really a little bit different. The
2: expectation is much more genteel. I mm-hmm. mean this has very elegant language, but the situation is far from genteel, is it?
0: <laughs> well, when, when, when you look at it, the, the setting is a beautiful set of this huge living oh, room. Glorious, The yes, costumes with, are great. Yes. So you know right away you're watching like a Merchant Ivory movie or a PBS uh, British uh, you know, drama. Here right. you are on a, on a stage. So you're expecting it to be very proper and prim. And it turns out, as you say in the third line, to be anything but because we know right away as the audience, we know we're in for some interesting evening.
2: Uh, yes, and I, when I first read it too, I didn't realize how, how, um, how many laughs there'd be, to be honest. I, because the, the, there is a serious underbelly to the whole thing, and the relationship between Constance and her husband John, is so beautifully played by Michael Comste, is really um, a fascinating character study of what happens to a marriage over 15 years, when the affection and the um, real respect, like, although you might we i think we women can argue that John is lacking in respect, but he thinks he has respect for constance uh, he certainly adores her, but when the passion has gone, but the the love is there is still it 's the age old problem for for couples, and it is very seriously dealt with, even though I think we were all surprised at some of the laughs, some of them you know were pretty clear to us where they ought to be anyway but we were quite surprised and utterly delighted with how the audience just really rocks over it. You know, it's right. won- it's wonderful fun to do.
0: Now, you are the daughter of Sir Michael Redgrave and uh, Rachel Kempson. Yes. And Kate Burton's the daughter of Richard Burton. Have yes. the two of you worked before?
2: Well, we never have, but we've always felt this without really knowing each other well. I've just, we've just bumped into each other through the years as uh-huh. as theatre people do, but. Uh, my dad, Michael Redgrave, played Hotspur when Richard Burton was playing Henry, uh, Hal, Prince Hal, and then my dad was the chorus in Henry V when he was. He moved on to Henry V. Burton was Ferdinand in the Tempest. My dad was Prospero. All of this was in one season at mm. Stratford in 1951. S- uh, Sybil uh, Burton, as she was then, now Sybil Christopher, um, Kate's indeed mom. Kate's mum, was also in the company. And I was eight years old and madly in love with Richard. Kate wasn't even born at this point. Mm -hmm. I was, I mean, I was deliriously in love with Richard, and I was only eight. Of course, I was not alone in being in love with Richard. Everybody was in love with Richard. So somehow through the years, I knew, you know, when I first came to America in the 60s, that was when, you know, Sybil had her club, Arthur's, in New York City, and I knew her then. And it it just feels like the Burtons and the Red Graves have had this sort of connection so that... Kate and I find it just more than delightful that there we are on stage as mother and daughter and having the best fun. We get on terribly, terribly well just in, in regular life, whatever that is, <laughs> uh, because we're both the kind of very down to earth. We both have a sense of humour. We're both the product of, of uh, theatre families, you know, and, and movie families. So we've, we've a lot in common and we can kind of, we've just hit it off immediately. It's lovely, lovely
1: before we move totally off the constant wife mm. i i was i was amused because this role as well as the last role i saw you play which was your wonderful performance in talking heads alan oh. bennett's uh one act off broadway you you played oh one could say matronly or straight seemingly straight arrow women and then with a twist and of course <laughs> the next role that we we know you're going to be playing is um Lady Bracknell and the importance of being earnest yes. out in LA. So is is there a through line to to these
2: characters? Or? I, I don't know. I mean, certainly it's been noted and I thought it myself when I read The Constant Wife that Mrs. Culver certainly could be a, a, a softer a cousin, Lady Bracknell. A sort of yeah. cousin of you know, Lady Bracknell, the the period's a little earlier. But undoubtedly Mrs. Culver Picked up a thing or two along the way, I would say, had she known Lady Bracknell personally. So they're not completely dissimilar. Um, I think Fossard's Miss, Fossard, a different social Miss class. Miss a totally different social class, indeed. Quite mm-hmm. Well noted, and um, and not a not a married woman, not not a woman with children, um, a, a spinster, as we used to call them, <laughs> living with the brother, just her only really luxury, going and having her feet done by Mr. Dunderdale, and perhaps helping him with his back problems. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, we should say the the importance of being earnest that you're going to do is we've been traipsing through the Burton-Redgrave discussion. You're going out to do that uh, at the Amundsen Theatre in Los Angeles, which is now run by Michael Ritchie, <laughs> who we've had as a guest um, on this program, yes. who is Kate's husband. Yes, so indeed. The,
2: and... Um, which which is heaven. Um, I'm looking forward to that very much. I haven't been at the Armencin since, since I did Les Liaisons Dangereuses with Frank Langella some years ago, and um, that's a that'll be fun to do that. Then we tour a little, and then we come to Bam um, in April for four weeks, and then I think there may be one more city. So so the whole. I'll be playing her for a good five months or so. And do you know who else is, it, is the No, Colecat all showcast? I know, I'm, I'm it so far, and... and You're Peter, the marquee Sir, name, Sir Peter so Peter that's... Hall is, <laughs> is the director, so, that, so we're in good hands there. And Of course, my dad played Jack in the movie with... That most famous performance of Lady Bracknell by Edith Evans, who I acted with in Noel Coward's A Fever, directed by Noel Coward. I think we could do so this whole it's show all, is the, it's it's all the six degrees, degrees of separation in just. It's all Kevin Bacon land, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I
0: should also note that uh, at the Amundsen, the run begins, is scheduled to begin January 22nd through March
2: 5th. I think you're absolutely right. right possibly right. a preview starting. Um, January seventeenth, I think.
0: Uh huh. And our listeners on the West Coast should take special note of that. And if they're coming to New York here, the show you're in currently is scheduled to run now through August fourteenth.
2: August fourteenth. Right. Yes. Right. So yes. Still, indeed. So a few indeed. good weeks
0: left. As as we continue to talk about family,
1: you are certainly best known as an actress, but you've made the choice twice now to write. Plays either explicitly about your family or that some or have suggested yeah. uh, are suggested by your family? Actually,
2: three times because uh, first, of course, was Shakespeare from my father, where while I was dramatically selective in what was in the play and what wasn't, it was nonetheless my my story about, you know, sort of searching for a relationship with my dad, really. Then I wrote a play called The Mandrake Root, which, where the character of Rose was very, very much. Um, a bit more than loosely based, I would have to say, on my mother, Rachel. And I did uh, two productions of that in, um, and this was not a one woman play. Uh, this was in the Long Wharf in um, Connecticut, in New Haven, and also at the San Jose Rep, where the character of the daughter was played by fabulous Cynthia Mace um, quite, quite brilliantly. Uh, Now I'm working on yet another one, the third one, which is Nightingale. And Nightingale is a one-woman piece. And it's, my mother's mother was a woman called Beatrice. And I, yes, I knew her and she died in the early 60s. She was a, always seemed a sad, thin, cold person as grandchildren we you know she was the sort of one who said you couldn't have the candy off the tree at christmas uh-huh. you know no you no, no you can't have that always a sort of a no person uh-huh. the glass was very definitely half empty for her uh-huh. my grandfather her husband had died when i was four and beatrice just seemed this sad creature and by the time i was a teenager i felt great compassion for her. i'd go round and you know sort of cook her a meal and things like that but You couldn't exactly warm to Beatrice. And my mother would tell me stories of how difficult it was for her as a child because Beatrice would always be the one who would push her away. You know, if the other children were were sick, you know, Rachel was the one who had to look after them. Don't touch me, don't come near me. Not a huggy, hands-on mother, which made my mother incredibly insecure. My mother, who was one of the warmest, most extraordinary, passionate women, was insecure to the end of her life, which was almost 93 couldn't, for example, sit in the row, middle of a, a row of seats in the theatre, lest perhaps she might feel sick. All of this, you know, baggage from childhood. And I knew about four sort of family myths about my mum. They weren't really myths. My grandmother, I mean, they were passed down to be by my mother because they were not told to me directly by my grandmother. And they were that um, one that her honeymoon night had been an absolute disaster because she and my grandfather seriously knew nothing. I mean, had no idea that there was such a thing as sex. They just, my grandfather knew, but his opening words to her, according to my mother, according to her mother, so this is handed down, Mm -hmm. were, I've got something absolutely awful I've got to ask you to do. Was his opening line on honeymoon night? Well, you can imagine it was not, this did not bode well. I knew also that um at his death she reportedly my grandmother had kissed his coffin and said I'm sorry I'm so sorry. I knew that after his death she liked to go to Switzerland alone and paint watercolors. And most importantly, I knew that her most beloved youngest son, my uncle I, who I never knew, my uncle Robin had been had sunk in the in the prince of wales in the sinking of the prince of wales ship during the second world war in the South China Sea and then for the rest of the war they didn't know had he survived and been taken prisoner or had he died and so they went through that agony um, of not knowing and then indeed he had died and this was the love of her life was and that once she had been in love with somebody else but anyway out of those things I've made the life of a woman who I now call Mildred because so much of this is from my imagination and um, it, it's a one-woman piece, I'll call it at the moment. It is a play. It's a character study, if you like. You were commenting earlier about my playing um, sort of either, you know, matrons or older people or whatever. <laughs> They're probably all my age. But um, in this, Mildred goes from childhood to to the end uh, in a sort of brief 80, 90 minutes. Uh There are lots of laughs on the way, um, but it is really a kind of a way of, I don't know, keeping her alive in some funny way. I feel so, I feel very sad about her, and a few years ago, I went looking for her grave in the graveyard where I knew it was because of the acid rain in Europe. All the names had washed off the gravestones, and I Mm. couldn't find her and my grandfather. And I... I was crying. I was running around the cemetery, crying, looking mm. for. The are there
1: church records that allow you to identify? Uh,
2: you know, English churches are mainly locked at all times unless there's a service going on. You, you, you know, mm-hmm. unlike uh, American churches, we can go walk in. And um, I thought about my grandfather. He'd been the principal of the Royal Naval College, Dartmouth. So I knew, oh, he'll be remembered for for as long as there's a book or a a stone or a plaque at Dartmouth. My grandfather is part of its legacy. But what happens to somebody like my grandmother, who didn't leave a mark? She wasn't you know, she wasn't a famous actress, she wasn't a writer, she wasn't a sculptor, she wasn't a painter, a musician. She died, she lived, she laughed, she loved, she cried, she died, and then her name washed off the gravestone and that made me so made me got me going on writing this play. But
0: in those in those ninety three years, what a story.
2: Yeah, you well, know, and we she did didn't live to 90, but she lived to 80, her 80s, oh, okay. but my mother lived to oh, your her 80s, okay. yeah. And I've sure. done a couple of readings of this in New York City at Susan Charlotte's Food for Thought program at the National Arts Club, and now I'm going to do one performance on August the 21st, uh, which is a Sunday night for Women's Center Stage Festival at 45 Bleeker, the Culture Project, in New York City. Here in New York, yeah. Yeah.
1: But it's an interesting choice, Uh, people often discuss is an actor, a creative artist, interpretive artist, and certainly the choice of being a writer is a different discipline than being a performer. And with all of this work coming rooted in your family, is that the impulse for you when you write that it is memorializing or interpreting your family for people?
2: I suppose in a way that's actually what an awful lot of writers do. They just disguise it a hell of a lot more. Um, you know, Neil Simon has made no bones about writing about his family a great deal. You know, Brighton Beach memoirs, Biloxi Blues, um, you know, you name it. Um, John Robin Bates writes a lot about his family, again disguised. Tennessee Williams write, it writes about, I'm putting myself in rather illustrious company <laughs> here, but, but why not? Um, you know, Tennessee Williams absolutely uh, wrote about you know, v- spun off on the things he knew. I think we've all, all of us have our stories. And all of us, if we chose to, could could spin fascinating tales because everybody's families are so interesting. And sometimes the most ordinary lives are often the most fascinating.
0: You, your sister Vanessa, your brother Corin, born into a, a very famous acting family. Mm. Was it always expected of you that you would go onto the stage...
2: Not expected of me. Certainly expected of Vanessa and Uh Uh Corinne. Vanessa, um, you know, there's a well-known story, or if it's not known, I'll make it well-known right now, that my dad was playing Laertes to Laurence Olivier's Hamlet on the night that Vanessa was born. And she was born, the news came during the performance. And at the curtain call, Olivier stepped forward and said, uh, "Ladies and gentlemen, tonight a star, a new star is born. Laertes has a daughter." So that you know <laughs> that, that's that's done. That Corinne absolutely was expected to be uh, an actor, um, and uh, they. I nothing was expected of me, which was both extremely unflattering and utterly delightful, uh, <laughs> because you know I. One would like to think that one doesn't burden one's children with expectations, but to not expect anything is, is perhaps a little damning. Um, not for lack of love, certainly by my mum. My, for, for lack of sort of noticing, I think, in my dad's case. Not lack of love. He just was a bit busy at the time. However, it also meant that coming third in this family of you know two, three children... And as you've remarked with you know my parents acting, in fact our grandparents too were actors, it kind of allowed me to come up with this idea when I was 15 that I would like to be an actor and somehow fool myself into thinking that it was a brand new idea. I don't know how I did that mind trip on myself, but I really did... Because nobody was certainly not pushing. I mean, they were they were deeply shocked. My parents when I said I'd like to go to drama school. You know, my mother's right. face fell. My father went silent.
0: Had you shown any signs of wanting to act prior to that? No, none at all. Nothing in school no. plays or whatever.
2: No, I just had this. Uh, but I had a whole. No, I was. I did do a school play. I did uh, a couple. You know, a shepherd and a. I, I was so. Sh- I was so shy, and although my dad was such a shy person too, and lots of actors actually are shy, or start out shy. Um. I thought, oh, you know, oh, I couldn't get up and do things. It was, it was when I hit on what transformation was and how I could disappear inside somebody, and that's still my absolute favourite thing. I think when I've, when I'm proudest of my work, it's when I have disappeared enough that Lynn isn't present. So perhaps could, gods and monsters, for so example,
0: you can be somebody else then. It's, somebody yes, and now
2: yourself. I actually do enjoy being me, and I have enjoyed being uh-huh. me for a long time. But when I was younger i i thought me was rather boring but that inside of me was this um excited mind
0: Well, what what is the real Lynn redgrave like then
2: well that pretty much as you see her i don't think i'm putting on an act for you um i'm you know i'm, I'm old now so i you know i got over my shyness and i um i still have a very vivid Imagination, and I have a steel-trap mind for detail, which came from many, many long hours alone as a child because my brother and sister went to school and were older than me, not a great deal, but enough that they were out at school. And I didn't go to school till I was about six and a half because I was anemic, and in those days in England, nobody thought you could do anything about that. You just sat about getting sick. But um, I suppose, you know, a lot of writers who have been somewhat isolated as children develop this fantastic inner life and i noticed everything and i still you know a great deal of my writing flows out of me because i remember things and i remember details about things that that have always struck me and i've now found a sort of outlet for them i also find that outlet for them in my acting in that i can recall behavior um and i i i think of myself a bit like a magpie you know who's attracted to bright objects and puts them away in the nest to keep in case they might need them later. And that's really what I've done all my life. So um, I I always, even in, in the days when I was clearly very good casting for Georgie Girl, in other words, not a glamorous person, inside myself I saw no reason why I couldn't be anything I wanted to be if I could just turn into them.
1: Well, to invert John's question... Given that we can't go through all of the countless roles you've played, <laughs> no, absolutely not. No. What are the roles that you are proudest of, or the roles in which you think you most submerged, Lynn Redgrave?
2: Um. Oh, uh, I would say I did um, a production of Three Sisters with my with my sister and my niece on stage in England. Um, that was in ninety nine ninety and ninety one, I think it was, and. Um, Marsha, really. Well, I don't think there was much Lynn around in her. Uh, I, I loved playing Marsha. Um, I think, you know, my most completely complete submerging to date probably has been Hannah in Gods and Monsters, although I think I did a pretty good job in Tony Randall's first season, Little Hotel on the Side, uh, as Mrs. Madame Pangley. Um, I remember Kitty Carlisle coming round after and Kitty's known me for years and years and years and um she said I I turned to my friend at the intermission and said, I thought Lynn Redgrave was in this and of course I'd been in on in many, many scenes, so I was quite quite proud of that one. <laughs> it's really is fun to to i I always thought that would be the ideal, perhaps coming from such a small island, you know, when you think that England fits about once and a half into Texas Actors have to be very ingenious about not overstaying their welcome in a character. So, you know, the old reps, you know, the great thing was how different could you be? And my dad, for all he was such an extraordinary and good-looking leading man, was a character actor in the truest sense. Um, I know we now think of character actor as somebody who isn't the leading person but may give actually the same performance in every film or play. But that's not what character actor is to me. Character actor is turning, turning into other characters and being as different as possible and as, as surprising as possible so that people won't know exactly how you're going to play a part.
0: Now, Howard's question about the shows you've been in, shows you haven't been in, roles you have not played, any particular role that you would love to play?
2: There was one where I never would have been cast um, in that era, probably not in this era, where I' young enough now. Um, but I did get to be little bits of it in Shakespeare. My father, I always wanted to play Juliet. Oh. It was one of my mother's great roles, um, and right almost to her death, she would still at you know at a benefit or at, indeed at my one of my daughter's weddings, she would perform a bit of Juliet. And whatever her age, she would literally she boy she showed how to transform you know. This somewhat frail person would be holding on to the chair and having to be helped up onto the podium or the stage, and suddenly she was Juliet. It was astonishing, and <laughs> grown men would sob. Is all that I know. So I always wanted to play Juliet, and I, I, uh, I didn't get to do it. I don't suppose, um, you know, Juliet was never meant to be tall. Apparently, I don't know why there are lots of tall fourteen-year-olds. I was oh. certainly this tall when I was fourteen. So,
0: how, how tall are you?
2: Well, I was five foot ten, but I shrunk to five foot nine. It's really depressing. I hate we that I do. shrunk. <laughs> I know. We're but talking know. about
0: mothers. We're talking about your daughter. Yeah. Uh, talk about your journal, a mother and daughter's recovery, on your website, which is redgrave dot com. For anybody who cares to visit, uh, you prominently feature the book that you've, you've written, journal, a mother and daughter's recovery.
2: From Breast Cancer, right, right. yes. Um, actually, it's really more my daughter's book in that it's she's a fantastic photographer, Annabelle Clark, and you can get to her website via my website or go directly to her extraordinary work at um, She, I asked her if she would document every step of the way through my um, cancer, surgery, and um, treatment. And she, at the same moment, more or less, as I was asking her, had thought that if she could photograph me, she was sort of having the same thought, then, then it would be a project and she would be able to participate fully in not just being the person sitting in the waiting room, you know, biting their nails, hearing secondhand what was going on, but that also a project has a beginning, a middle, and, and then it's end, it ends. And she figured when it ended, I'd be well. And so it was almost like a bit of magic in that she looked on this project as a way of making me well. And it was her idea to, when she was making this little sort of prototype book, this was a year before a publisher wanted to do it, or certainly a year before the New York Times published uh, in the magazine several of the pictures, she said, look, I don't want to do captions, but I know you've written a journal forever. I know you've been writing about this. Is there some stuff I could use? So she chose every single thing that was used. She edited it um, And it was her idea. So I really think of this as Annabelle's book for which I've provided the text. And, of course, I didn't provide the text to go with the pictures because I was writing it all along. I've written a journal for years and years and years.
1: Since we keep coming back to family, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago appearing in Three Sisters with your sister and with your niece. Mm What is it like when you—getting into a rehearsal room is always about creating a new family. Sometimes you may come up with it. You may be working with actors you've worked with before, but it's always about forming that unit. Um, what is it like to to go on, to go into rehearsals, to go on the stage with people you obviously know so well and obviously all of the, the the positives and negatives that brings?
2: It's pretty astonishing, and certainly in the case of Three Sisters, the thing that's the hardest, I think, for actresses playing, Olga, Marsha, and Irina, is to, in four or five weeks, whatever the rehearsal period is, really truly inhabit sisterhood. Well, we had one up on that, and although Gemma's our niece, the daughter of our brother Corin, uh, she's our family, and um, she often, you know, sort felt like a younger sister to us, you know, by then. And so that was the bit we didn't have to work at, which was kind of wonderful. There's a sort of familiarity of body language or whatever that is undoubtedly different. And that's something you have to work at when you play somebody's relative. Uh, You know, that's a whole part of it. Well, we we didn't even have to go for that. We just went straight to all the other things that we needed to go for. Yes, it does have its difficulties. I think the biggest difficulty with family is that you might overstep the boundary of what you might say to a family member which you would just draw back from with a colleague however well you knew them you know there's a there's a fine line between being helpful and supportive and and maybe invading somebody's territory as an actor and when you have the familiarity of family there is a danger that you might just forget and walk over the boundary because that you would walk over it in all other walks of life family cooking you know travel but you mustn't and that's hard that's quite hard on all of us we've discussed it before my brother and sister have worked together I've worked with my brother Um, we all worked in various versions and you just have to be a little vigilant about that.
0: But even though the lines you're delivering are not ones that you yourself are speaking, it's the playwright's line. Yes. And you're being directed by a director to act in a certain way, you can still step over that line or feel self-conscious about it? Well, it's
2: it's more stepping over the line of what you might say in rehearsal, not the lines of the character. Oh, So, I mean, you know, maybe you disagree with how a relative is playing a scene. I see. If it's a colleague, however well you know them, there's a boundary if there's something you feel strongly about and you feel that you have the right to deliver the information, you must go to the director and say, I've had this thought. I don't know if you agree with me, but blah, blah, blah. Because you're so right on with your own family, there's a danger that I might, you know, if you were my brother, say, look, the way you're doing this radio show. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But just because, and then you might be offended and then we might have a little family tiff about it.
1: And it could bring up something that, that, been on between the, you for 20 or 30 has, years yes, has nothing I, I absolutely must confess nothing to do
2: with with checkoff the you know? fact
1: that you're that, that you and your sister tackled on film uh, whatever happened to baby jane <laughs> yes. has got to be there's
0: there's now, a psychodrama that was disturbing
2: i must say when i put the duct tape over her mouth that was disturbing i mean that really disturbed me really i, I don't think she, how, how so she was it feels if it, it oh, it's violent it's very mm-hmm. nasty but as the and young, as the, as, as
1: the young, the youngest of three, the, the opportunity it to take control—it felt very
2: dangerous. It the was the, really the, fun.
0: you feel a bit good too. <laughs> yeah,
2: it felt kind of good. I mean, not that I've ever wanted to do that to Vanessa, but it, and she was so game about it. I mean, she was no, don't worry about me. No, no, you're not hurting me. It's fine. Just go ahead. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I cut her hair on camera. I mean, oh, she let me do it too. Cut yeah. her, her real hair. What's a real only? hair on camera in the scene where where Bl- uh, Jane goes too far. And, ruins the hair and she let me do it Um, and she was like no no you know they had a couple of cameras on maybe three even because we could only do it once but um, she was very game about it and I was kind of scared you know
0: but after you had done it how did you feel then
2: the scene was really good so I felt good (laughs) (laughs) when you saw it up on screen the scene was great yes
0: and hopefully you did it in one take
2: Yes, with several cameras rolling. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, would had hope to. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, we're talking about family with you, your real family, also your current family at the American Airlines Theater, the Constant Wife mm. currently running through August fourteenth, here right. in New York. Literally on Forty Second Street, the American Airlines Theater.
2: It is indeed, and it was the old Selwyn Theater, I should say. You know, I before I ever went in the American Airlines Theatre, I thought, Oh, will it be a sort of modern box? Because mm. I didn't realise that in fact what what had happened was there was this multimillion dollar wonderful renovation of an old vaudeville house, the Selwyn
1: and we should say by the roundabout theater company the roundabout the theater pre- company pred- exactly who are of so the wonderful
2: yes, yeah, so the producer of concert wife and and my niece Natasha Richardson just closed for them in in street name design, which she was fabulous um, but it 's a beautiful old theater that has had the most glorious renovation, so although when you 're outside on forty second street right next to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and opposite the Lion King. We look a bit modern. Mm -hmm. You walk through those doors and, oh, my goodness, it's a delightful theatre. It's absolutely beautiful. And and so, um, you know, hooray that. And someone some your height
0: and my height, 6'5", I appreciate the leg room in that theater. It's the, good leg room, the isn't the seats it? Actually it's not bad, is it? Yes. It's okay, yes, yes. <laughs> it is okay, indeed. And Lynn Redgrave, you are okay, too.
2: I, I am. And while, while we're, we've we been talking about family, uh, I've had so many emails from strangers. So anybody well, we listening my brother? should say, how my is brother? your brother? Yes. Thank you. Um, well, he's doing really remarkably. It's uh, less than five weeks since he had a cardiac arrest. And was not breathing at all um and was um in a coma for several days, and we were told it was all in, mm. it was all over basically wow. and the next morning he woke up and it's been a slow road, but um we talk on the phone now he's now he's still in hospital, but he's going outside of the hospital in fact. When my niece called me today, she left me a message that um, they'd just been to the paper shop, they'd gone to get some coffee, and now they were going to buy a pair of trousers for him. So he's making enormous strides, and uh, I don't know how long it's going to be before hopefully he can act again and, and be completely well, but um, I do would like to thank any, any viewers who so kindly, I mean any listeners who so kindly have written to me, or those who've just held him in their thoughts and prayers, and thank you for that.
0: It's good. Uh, I it's would encourage to our know. listeners to visit the, your website, redgrave.com, yes. and there's a link there for emailing you, so if they want to send it you an email, indeed. they certainly that can. That would be lovely, yes. Lynn, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Thank Center. Thanks, thanks, Lynn. Thank you so much. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard
1: Sherman, reminding our listeners, as I do every week, that these programs and all of the media and education work of the American Theatre Wing is available from online, on demand, from our website,
0: www.Americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.